One, two, three, podcast. One, two, three, podcast. Two, three, hey! Hello. Hi. Hi. Welcome to episode two of Lucky, Lucky Reading, Reading podcast. podcast. A process piece. This is a podcast where we talk about things that we're reading, and we made this podcast because we were reading and we wanted to hear our own voices. <laughs> <laughs> In this episode, we're going to talk about five things. The first thing is me having read How to Set a Fire and Why by Jesse Ball. A novel. A novel. The second topic is Half Gods by Akil Kumarasamy, a short story collection. The third thing, this is the in the bathroom section of the podcast, is... Nintendo's Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild out from Nintendo. The fourth thing is An Indigenous People's History of the United States by Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. And the last thing is the Earthseed series by Octavia Butler. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So I'm here to talk about How to Set a Fire and Why by Jesse Ball. It's a novel. A novel. A novel. But there is a pamphlet within the novel called How to Set a Fire and Why, written by the first-person protagonist of the novel. Mm. Okay, so this book I got for free. (laughs) I got an advanced reader's copy back in the year 2016, when I worked at a bookstore and my boss manager at the time actually got the copy and then she said that I could read it as long as I gave it back and I didn't read it at the time and I didn't give it back either <laughs> and I moved away from where I lived and now I'm here and I finally read it so I'm ready to give it back wow. um, what compelled you to read it now four years later yeah, I like to read books by Jesse Ball. Um, I have read one of his novels and one of his workbook, two of his workbooks actually. One of them about writing workshops and the other one about how to lucid dream. I I think that I gravitate towards Jesse Ball books <clears throat> when I'm feeling like the process of writing is very cumbersome and very serious and that I am too stupid to be doing it. Jesse Ball's approach is very lighthearted and full of grace and mystery. In his teaching workbook, he says to expect that you will be thought of as a whimsical jackass, which I think probably people have accused him of being, but that sort of ability to shapeshift through whimsicality and like move through the deft touch to actually arrive at strange and unsettling emotional resonance, especially vis-a-vis capital and the state. Hmm. All of that is super well done. And he's also tremendously funny in like a weirdo way. Like you always feel reading his books like an alien is speaking. (laughs) Um, or that it's like 
badly translated from a, like a Cyrillic language or something. Wow. Here is a an example of what I'm talking about. This chapter is called Dogs. I'm going to read the whole chapter. A guy named Walt, who had three pit bulls with him, gave me a ride home in his wagoneer sometime around dawn. He was pretty old, and his dogs were all sweet as fuck. If you like dogs, he said, you should sit in the back. They will sit all over you. So I did that. I was thinking, I like these dogs, and these dogs can actually predate on me if they choose to. One of them, Mona, was 115 pounds. How heavy do you think she is? Walt asked me. I said, she is definitely heavier than I am. Mona had an awesome white patch on her face. She kept doing the dog thing of knocking her head into me and leaning against me to provoke, to try to provoke some petting. In her case, though, it is not really a question. You will pet her or she will eat you. Walt dropped me at the corner and Mona gave a little wail when I got out. The other two dogs didn't care as much. She never likes anyone, Walt says, which is what dog owners always say. Does everyone believe it? I usually do. End of chapter. Hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, it's something about the the kind of spacey, aerial quality of the prose mm-hmm. mixed with, like, really fine, precise observation and the voice of the protagonist. She's, like, a 17-year-old kid. Mm. I don't know. Jesse Ball, like, walks a really fine tightrope between kind of Holden Caulfield-type shittiness and precious... I am a full-grown adult writing from the point of view of a teen shittiness. Um, <laughs> but he does it, he manages not to fall into either trap. And instead, like, the voice of Lucia is incredibly precise and incredibly fine and seems like a human person while also seeming like a real believable kind of weirdo. Mm. Um, which is exactly what I like. In his prose. I also like that he titles everything. Like every chapter has a title and then there are like subtitles within the chapters, which I don't know why, but I think that he does that super well. I didn't meet Jesse Ball, but was in the same room as him once when he talked and the person introducing him, Brian Evanson, said that Jesse Ball, what did he say? He said, Jesse Ball used to be a poet before he got some common sense or something like this. Some condescending thing, right? (laughs) I think that, yeah, I think that Jesse Ball's sort of formal play, it seems very much like the formal play of a poet. And it Mm -hmm. seems like, yeah, having these tiny chapters where each one is titled and thinking of them as their own kind of contained Mm -hmm. rooms or houses the way that you do in a poem. Um, All of that feels incredibly deliberate. Mm. And, And yeah, and like a way of moving the conventional pieces of fiction that we think about, like plot and character forward without like creating this plot machine that you can hear moving whenever something happens Mm. um four out of five wow what's it about but don't no spoilers spoil it it's about a teen who has a hard time she's born and raised into an anarchist family her parents one of them dies the other 
suffers from like serious dementia. So she lives with her aunt, who is also an anarchist. And this teen has a difficult run of being in high school and wants to set fires for political purposes, but maybe also to get even emotionally. But not really that much. Mm. How is this book more like a novel than than like a collection of poems? Hmm. Or That's a good like question. A, a guidebook, for example. <laughs> um, I was thinking about that while I was reading it. Like what what novels do, what novels are for. I think that a novel is often an excuse to include random tidbits and introduce sort of a a buffet of themes and ideas without having to reintroduce them again. I think that, you know, those in the writing workshop state of mind will disagree with me. But I think that the novel as a form is a pretty broad container for including and introducing ideas that don't necessarily have to go anywhere. Mm. And so really you're stringing, you're stringing a story's worth of plot along, or you have the ability to string a story's worth of plot along on like the barest amount of stuff Mm. while introducing thoughts and ideas and like digressions and tangents and like images and feeling without having to you know without having to turn turn them all the way back into something meaningful or substantive Mm. i mean i mean i think they are meaningful and substantive i i guess without having to connect them and tie them together in such a way that like every theme every aspect of the book becomes like blindingly important by the fact that you've woven it all back up together Mm. again and like redeemed someone somehow Mm. or whatever i guess this was hearkening back to last podcast the overstory was a novel that every possible thing that happened had to be woven back into the big important themes of the novel or like the important plot arcs of these important character people Mm -hmm. and so that felt like a very kind of manipulative machine of a book whereas this book in which nothing really happens and we get a lot of sort of intimate feeling details and intimate detail details about this weirdo's experience Mm -hmm. feels like a much bigger world Mm. and like a much a much more destabilizing space to occupy and a much more interesting space to occupy because it's so strange also a teen's experience is very random and very full of material and when you're a teen you don't actually know which pieces connect and when things are important and when they're just things that are happening Mm -hmm. so I guess that's a kind of fidelity to phenomena and I think a novel approaches fidelity to phenomenon pretty well in terms of what it is for. Mm. How to Set a Fire and Why by Jesse Ball, published in 20... In July 2016, 304 pages, 2495, Canadian, 3249, 
49. Um, they put Facebook, they had a Facebook advertising campaign. They had promotion at San Diego Comic-Con. Wow. They had online advertising, including nytimes.com, chicagoreader.com, three guys, one book. Oh, gross. (laughs) And the rumpus. Those are all made-up website names. I've never heard of any of those. (laughs) Who published it? That would be Pantheon out of Penguin Random House Distributors. Never heard of them either. Yeah. Jesse Ball. You want to talk about a book? Mm, maybe. Last night, I was reading How to Set a Fire and Why, and Johnny was cackling off to the side reading her book. My book is called Half Gods by Akil Kumarasamy. <laughs> what is it? Um, Half Gods is a short story collection. Her stories have been published in a variety of places, but this is her first book. As someone who is part of the South Asian diaspora, or is a daughter of the South Asian diaspora, I have been gravitating towards writers who also are of this ilk, and especially not not solely Asian American writers, but just like people who are on the move in late stage capital across the world, also needing to like beef beef my chops. <laughs> beef up my fiction chops oh yeah Uh, (laughs) those chops those chops i wanted to really give it a go so this and i've been really pleasantly surprised because so often i am deeply confused and disappointed by fiction in the american setting in general so anyway um this book is a collection of stories Ten stories that uh, interlink a web of characters through family lineages, through history in Sri Lanka, and then Kentucky, New Jersey. Uh, I'm just at The Butcher, which I think is going to take us in a different direction. It rotates around the interconnected lives of people in this in this one family there are two sons there is their mother there is their grandfather this segment is called jay tries out fiction <laughs> jay what's your beef with fiction <laughs> and when you say fiction do you mean all fiction movies oh great that's radio really great. novellas great great question what's the deal i think my 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 biggest beef with fiction kind of across the board what like whatever media it exists inside of is when i don't know i guess it's like the like the the structures around who is reading fiction and like who is making it legible and like why like fiction as a form to make someone's experience legible and there are functions of fiction that seek to do that and I think legibility is like a deeply hegemonic thing so if there for example if there are plot beats one needs to hit in order to connect to a a character or an entity's experience in in your relationship with them I just I think that's I think that's a really weird predetermined relationship 
and that is deeply problematic if we're if we are trying to deconstruct like how we've been conditioned to look at entities or people in general and i think fiction replicates those societal problems all the time um and also the problems of capital <laughs> every time i read a fiction but not this fiction so what's different about this fiction so there are plot beats <gasps> money <laughs> <laughs> there are there are plot beats okay so maybe maybe again i don't know if there's anything different necessarily about this fiction there are like the like little worrying machines of fiction that I see inside of these stories, they all follow the arc of fiction. Like in every one of the stories, there's like some sort of climax and then there's like the denouement and like there's this like build of space. So they all have the similar wave feeling. Um, and there's, there is often a moment of tension between two characters that kind of snaps the story into a new pace, but it's often really surprising. I think that the nodes of surprise come from the roots of trauma and the roots of diaspora. And like, and those, those things that like snap or move or shift, even though if you have existed as like a person of color in the United States or like moving across the world, a lot of your experiences of like, pain or confusion maybe maybe resonate or find like a similar theme but there's something about these stories that you really get a, a deep sense of like compassion for each of these i don't know i don't know how to talk about fucking fiction i hate talking about fiction <laughs> that's why this is fun <laughs> it's not fun <laughs> professional podcast what is fiction trying to do here is something that i think is the difference between my study and my like learning of like poetry and activism versus like fucking fiction. There was one day in workshop with Thomas Sayers Ellis where he asked our small class to come up to the chalkboard and write what a poem was. Just like put words on this chalkboard and write what a poem was. People wrote all sorts of things including action, verb, or leap, or volta, or like just, you know, these words. I don't know, people wrote bubbles. And then we were all looking at this thing that we had woven together in this communal way, and Thomas just came up and erased the whole board really violently and dramatically <laughs> before anyone had snapped a photo of it to, like, take a note or whatever. It, it had just been smudged away from our bodies but he was like now internalize this moment <laughs> and what had come before and now we move on so there's this element of of construction and of passage departure that exists in the whole experience of poetry there's this really intense intertwining and then there's a departure well and when i'm saying this I'm feeling like these are this happens in fiction too, but there's something about I what I think the difference is in a fiction workshop, someone wouldn't erase that fucking board. <laughs> All of that shit would stay on the board, mm -hmm. and then you would 
there's just this this Dude. like weightiness, this monumental weightiness of a thing. And I think that to me is like really the difference between and how do then how do I talk about what that actually is and like means? Do you think that fiction writers or fiction products believe that they will live forever? Yeah. I do. Yeah. I don't think that poetry or or poetic products or poets depending who you are um believe differently i think that there's a myth of the poet kind of saving the political universe if i don't know there's the attunement to change and to the erosion of something in time and space and that is a an integral part of the history of a piece of material or work or something that poetry is like way more in touch with for me than fiction is and so that's like my beef i think with like that's the difference in and i say this speaking very generally like super generally um and of of course there are there are moments such as in this book half gods that i am delighted to be watching people deal with the ruins and be kind of like both forming and dissolving at the same time. So there's there's something that I resonate with there a lot more or find at least like more in tune with what reality actually is. Yeah. I don't know. So it has its use, but it's a reductive pathological way of making art. <laughs> it can be. <laughs> I don't know. I think I always felt an aversion towards like some grand fetishized thing. Um, this big ass tome that has a freaking cardboard cover and it's fancy and gold leafed. And I think I just felt a deep aversion to all forms of that. I can't imagine feeling an aversion to those things. <laughs> Don't you like men? What's your problem with men? <laughs> yeah, I think also, yeah, fundamentally, I do gender fiction as, like, the reproduction of toxic masculinity. <laughs> like, I like, so everything <laughs> is inside of that. Your story about Thomas Ayers Ellis erasing the chalkboard? Yeah. You could change his name to be a fictional name and reproduce that story in a work of and it would be a work of fiction and what then so what do you give half gods out of five either three and a half <laughs> out of five or a four out of five wow you know i think it's great that we can have these problems and continue to explore the artifacts that reproduce these problems and continue to be surprised by these artifacts. Part three, in the bathroom. Currently in the bathroom is everything that was in the bathroom last week. Thanks for listening. Um, as well as a new issue of Jacobin. Still such a strange magazine, ignoring so many facets of subjugation. <laughs> and existence in the United States. I'm also occasionally carrying my beautiful Nintendo Switch Lite into the bathroom when I go into the bathroom. Sponsored by Sponsored Nintendo by Nook. Switch. And 
it has been such a great thing to put so much of my attention into the Nintendo Switch Lite instead of into the other things that are happening in my life, in the world, relationally, and beyond. Thank you, Nintendo. Thank you, Zelda and Link and Ganon and all the other... And Mr. Deku Tree. And the Deku Tree. Very brief synopsis about the game. Five stars. Five stars. I... Okay, here's a bit about the game. It's not a book at all. Not in the least is it book-like. Here's how plot works in this game. Ooh. So you start out having woken up from a hundred-year slumber. Your name is Link, but everything else is completely unknown to you. Um, you emerge into the biggest god-darn open-world game. Uh, whew, huge. Overwhelmingly large. Very big place. And bit by bit, you piece together your memory and how it is linked to the fate of Hyrule and the world as Link knows it. And so, through a lot of questing, a lot of adventuring, a lot of ransacking uh, goblin huts, etc., you learn about what happened a hundred years ago, and what's gonna ha- what you need to do to save the world, and like, where is Zelda? Where are all your friends? What are you gonna do? Where's the Master Sword? It's at the Deku Tree's house. So, and... What that means in the experience of playing the game is that you're unleashed in this enormous world and left to traverse it and discover these things in any order, right? So my first, the things that I first did was I went to the east and I learned some stuff and I got some cutscenes about the past, but I could very well have gone the other direction and learned different things that I still don't even know. I still have not gone to the Southwest. In that way, it's as though someone wrote a book, cut out every chapter, and scattered them across a gigantic, beautiful, Miyazaki-esque world, and I'm having a blast picking up those fragments. Five stars. Part four, An Indigenous People's History of the United States by Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, put out by Beacon Press as part of their Revisioning America series, of which The People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn also falls. This book, I do not have to speak for Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz or the editors of this book for choosing to repopulate and kind of reclaim American history from the white master plantation of scene narrative. You were saying when you were first reading it that as a history, it started with contact, right? European contact. No, that's not true. No. Oh, okay. I thought you had said that. No, that's that's, good. that's what I think most U.S. history right, of course. Is, is. This book preceded contact. It set up the deep span of time and lineages and lives over you know millennia that existed on the landscape that are the americas so no it did not start with contact it it gave a very brief 
survey, uh, I suppose, of agriculture's architectures, relational fields, a small bit about cosmologies um, that existed in like the millennia of time for mm-hmm. what, what's kind of underneath is writing really actually quite at the center of this text is the claim of a militaristic cult that exists that binds the citizenship of the United States together. The trace of this is the Second Amendment, how this like right to bear arms was really a... It's really the, like I guess, the ratification of non-army-sanctioned, personal, settler-colonial, genocidal ethics. Like, be a ranger, be a mercenary, just, like, get paid by some land speculator and kill human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is part of Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz's thesis, just the, the cult of the gun in the United States. I think it's a deeply important text if, you're, if you are interested in being a responsible person who lives on Turtle Island. It also sounds like dealing with the fact that, like, the military began as a private project, or, like, militarization in the U.S. began as, like, a series of privately owned militias. And so, in thinking about, like, the cult of the gun, it's also the cult of, like, private ownership and private power. Absolutely. Whoops. There are wings of government that exist as an army, simultaneous to... The work that these private killing machines Mm -hmm. are up to Um, and oftentimes especially in the early stages of westward but everywhere expansion the army was trying to kind of like maintain shit on the eastern seaboard and i don't know there would be these claims that like they don't actually agree with the work that rangers are doing but surreptitiously actually that's exactly it's these private militias that are like doing the labor Mm -hmm. the dirty work the dirty work that later the army just kind of rushes into and puts a flag in right 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 chewing on that chewing on this it's one of those you stay mad you stay mad so that you can be a responsible person on this planet carve it out sister Number five. Number five. Wow, we're blasting through these. I read the entirety of a book and then read about 120 pages of the sequel to this book. And then I returned both books to the library. So this is a new a new way of discussing the book on Lucky Reading Podcast of a finished book and a kind of abandoned book simultaneously so the books are parable of the sower and parable of the talents by the late great octavia butler and i started reading these because i was embarrassed that i hadn't already and also because we you and i are going to an opera adaptation of the twain i think Indeed. Or maybe just one. By Toshi Reagan. By Toshi Reagan. And so I've decided to read these books. I have read several of Octavia Butler's others. They're great. 
And these were for sure some Octavia Butler books. I think everything that I like about her writing was high on display and everything that I felt like very confused and kind of left cold about is also happening. Plot synopsis. Imagine a world, if you will, in which all government systems have collapsed. Ecological devastation wreaks havoc all over the land. And the city of Los Angeles has been reduced to a sort of series of satellite suburbs with literal walls around them to keep the others out. And everybody else who doesn't live in one of these walled communities is perceived to be either a murderer or a drug addict or the victims of those two groups. So we follow a young person as she grows into the ripe old age of like 18 by the end of the first novel. Living in this enclosed community, thinking about how fucked the situation is, doing a bit of farming. What happens is that the others break in and burn the place down. And so this this protagonist's name, I forget, <laughs> is uh, sort of goes on an exodus with some other stragglers from her community and other people that she picks up to the north. I mean, Octavia, she's a master of suspense and dread and keeping your face directly inside of the scary, yucky difficult set of situations that she's created. I think with these books, they they read to me as such early 90s era LA books. Um, it's really hard not to read Rodney King Uprising into this, as well as like a lot of like Reagan freak out, Reaganomics freak out. The, the president's name in the first book is President Donner. And his whole thing is, is cannibalism, essentially, in the form of like private industries coming in and like buying cities and like creating labor towns that pay in script and then like putting you into debt. And then so your children can pay off your debt, but they never do. And so it's essentially a slavery thing, but like with the added like Reagan element of privatization of, of public sectors. And so on those levels, I think that these books are simultaneously like these really interesting critiques and through the looking glass style views of these really complicated problems. And on the other end, like, I don't know, I still don't really understand how I'm supposed to feel about the gated community in this book or the like ethical relationship between the gated community or not even gated, but just the walled off community and the rest of the world because it's a book in which the wall is justified and is sort of unquestioningly like this this literal force of safety that gets torn down and like that gets raised by by the others who come in who themselves like are rendered more human than they seem to be at the beginning of of the first book but i don't know there's still there's still like a lot of like separation of oneself from like 
the scary urban world that I feel kind of queasy about. And then like the whole major theme throughout the second book is that the protagonist is kind of this like visionary religious leader and like kind of creates a religion that is predicated on the belief that like humanity is meant to go to space and and colonize space which like why <laughs> you know like why should humanity colonize space why isn't that like even questioned at all as to whether that would be a good thing why the relentless expansion and colonization of places uh i don't know so all of these things they're not even critiques they're just they're just like kind of head scratchers for me and and then i uh stopped reading the second book and returned it to the library so maybe i'll pick it up again and those questions will be better answered but she was working on the third book it was going to be a trilogy when she died so i think there are manuscripts of early drafts of the third book i don't think that certainly not the like space colonization arc was ever finished uh but that's octavia butler man space is the place mm. and i think that the way that she has engaged leaving behind the bad thing and like behind the bad place with its bad history to like go on and like to try as a as a person but try as as a community a different way of of behaving ethically and a different way of creating a collective sense of uh well-being that's in all of her work and like really like a theme that I have to think more about. Episode two is over. Next week, we'll talk about Max Ye, T. Fleischman, more Legend of Zelda. And more. Thanks for joining us, JNT, as we vamp about books, articles, soap bottles, street signs, and other media on Lucky Lucky Reading Reading Podcast. The music you heard in this episode is Letter to Bernadette, a jammy demo by the combined forces of T. Rivera Dundas, M. Whiteman, and J.F.K. Rondawa. Beep, beep, beep.